Let us, let us begin with a prayer. In the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit. Lord, we thank you for the rain. We can use a lot more, but we thank you for every bit that we can get. So we also thank you for allowing us to come together here to share Holy Scripture and to learn what you want us to learn and hear uh, from it. So help us to open our minds and our hearts and try to remember some of the things that Paul is talking about so that when we hear uh, excerpts uh, at Mass or any other place, we'll kind of be able to identify with what he's really talking about. So we thank you for this time together. We thank you and praise you in all things. In Jesus' name. Today, as you know, is our final class. And the only part that we haven't covered in Galatians and Romans is the last two chapters of Romans. And what I'd like to do, rather than uh, finish that up and then go on to a summary uh, or a review, is to do the review and summary now and then talk about the last two chapters, partly because it is a beautiful closing uh, to Paul's letter, the, the great letter of Romans, but it also is kind of a closing to our uh, this session here. Our next session will probably be in January, and if you all agree uh, and don't have a better idea, I'd like to do the Gospel of John. Uh, we'll talk more about that later, all right? But to do a summary uh, of Galatians and Romans, we really have to identify it with God's plan of salvation. And so I'm going to do uh, a quick turnaround. If you'll get out your little handout on... The summary here, like this. What I'd like you to do is, can, first of all, can you all see this board? I don't have any extra glasses up here, but uh, I hope you can all see it, because... I'm going to do some little additions to it, you might say, that are not on your... Well, that's not exactly a good complete circle. It looks more like a tired pumpkin, but uh, that's the best I can do right now. All right? I hope you get the idea. It's important that you kind of understand God's plan of salvation because everything that is done in and through the church stems from that. Or if it doesn't, then it is wrong. And we have talked a little bit about the separation of Christianity from Judaism. 
But what I'm going to be showing you, I hope, is a slightly different idea here. Because God's plan of salvation began in God's mind, you might say, long before creation. Knowing that mankind was imperfect and would sin. And there had to be a way, way to resolve that breach. You've often heard the phrase, well, referring to God himself, of course, that says, be holy because I am holy. Or be holy for I am holy. For is really a wrong interpretation. It should be, be holy because I am holy. Meaning that he is asking mankind to be holy because in order to return to him at some time, we have to be purified because God cannot accept for any length of time somebody who is impure. That's the whole purpose for purgatory, but I don't want to get into that right now. Right? The whole idea is be holy because God is holy. All right. Now, the plan of salvation began with Abraham. We're going to say it begins up here with creation, and then somewhere along the line, uh, God starts this family, beginning with Abraham and his wife Sarah, and their offspring, Isaac, and offspring, uh, Isaac's offspring, Jacob, uh, from whom the twelve tribes of Jacob descended. Alright? And so you have these various, uh, events happening. And Judaism then begins from this family. The idea of all of the this family migrating down to Egypt was part of God's plan. It wasn't because there was anything wrong or they had done anything wrong uh, as it happened in the Babylonian captivity. That was something entirely different. Uh, they were sent down to Egypt in order to form a real community. If you read the story in the book of uh, Genesis, how they migrated down to Egypt because of the famine in Israel, and that they were housed and welcomed down there because of Joseph, who had preceded them, Joseph being one of the sons of Jacob. All right. And they were housed in the best territory of Egypt at the time, the land of Goshen, where they flourished uh, and were given... Uh, the best areas to water their flock and so forth and so on. But over a period of time, after Joseph died and the existing Pharaoh died, etc., and over uh, a period of three or four hundred years, uh, things changed dramatically and the Jewish population increased dramatically and it was then became a fear of the Pharaoh and the Egyptians that the uh, Hebrew people, as they were called, uh, would take over. 
and that uh, became uh, a sore point, and eventually they were placed under, uh, they became slaves, you might say. So God brings them out of Egypt, a major, major turning point in God's plan of salvation, and probably the most important event for the Jewish people in the Old Testament. And they still recognize uh, the uh, migration out of Egypt as a great event that God was behind them and supported them and so forth and so on. So you might say they followed this plan of salvation for quite a while. Think of this as a road. Okay. And they were on that road uh, in a very um, uh, obedient way, let's put it that way. All right. But then once they came back into the promised land, they didn't have any strong leadership. So God raised up for them uh, certain people, men and women, called judges. And for a long time, they were ruled by the judges. And things continued on this road rather well. But then they wanted a king, like the nations that surrounded them. You know, there were other nations around that surrounded these people, and they all had kings who represented them and gave them identity. And the Jewish people wanted that. God said, no, I'm your king. You don't need a king. They insisted they wanted a king. So God said to Samuel, all right, give them a king. And so they blessed Saul. Well, Saul was good to begin with, but he didn't quite make up what should have been. And so then they brought in David. David was another major event on this plan. Okay. After David came Solomon. Solomon was good to begin with, but then he went, well, he went off the beaten path. He went off the road, you might say. All right? Then they had other kings that followed. Solomon's son, Rehoboam, was probably one of the worst. And there was a whole series of kings that got further and further off the road. Then <coughs> Judaism was divided between the north and the south. That was a major break in the whole story. And then the Babylonian captivity happened because in all of this time period here, apostasy and all kinds of degradation developed among the Jewish people. They got further and further off the road. Okay? The Babylonian captivity was probably the lowest point of their history. And it was all caused due to their own sin. Another major loss to these people was the northern kingdom that was wiped out entirely and totally forgotten for a number of years. All right. 
So during the Babylonian captivity, the book of Deuteronomy was finally brought to light. It had been written almost 200 years before that, but was never accepted. And now the book was the only thing that they had while they were captives in in Babylon. And therefore, the house churches or the synagogues system developed because these were originally little houses of study. They then migrated over a period of time into houses of prayer later on once the temple had been destroyed. But during the Babylonian captivity, the original temple of Solomon was destroyed as well as Jerusalem. But once they started studying the book of Deuteronomy while they were in Babylon, they resolved that they were going to uh, be better people. They were going to put away apostasy and all of the other uh, worships of pagan gods and so forth and be better people once God returned them to Israel, which he promised to do. And he did. The only thing is, instead of their picking up where they should have along this road, they kept going on the wrong path. They went from one extreme of totally ignoring Holy Scripture and the things that God wanted them to do through Moses and some of the previous um, prophets, etc. And they said, oh yes, we'll do anything you ask, Lord, but we're going to do it our way. And that is not what God wanted. Okay. So the whole idea of Judaism was this idea of doing things their own way without discerning what God really wanted of them. And as we know, the intention was that God wanted these people to be um, a, a pure example of love of a community of love where each one would help the other, etc., and they would be a shining light to these other nations. That never happened. In fact, it went just the opposite. They became a very exclusive uh, community and totally ignored all of the other nations. And that is not what God wanted. So, God then allows them to stew in themselves. All right. If you read Psalm 81, and I recommend that you do, you will see exactly what God is saying to these people. And it has never changed. Okay. So what happens is then God brings in Jesus Christ, which he had promised all along. And this whole plan of salvation continues through Jesus Christ and his teachings and his life, death, and resurrection. So, when we had talked about in the first lesson about the separation of Christianity from Judaism, it really is a, a misnomer to speak of it that way because... Christianity is still working on this road to salvation, 
through the teachings and the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. But the Jewish people are the ones who separated themselves from this plan of salvation. And they are still sort of doing their own thing. Judaism has not really changed much since the 4th century A.D. when the Talmud was written. The Talmud is sort of a commentary on the 613 laws that come from the Old Testament. Uh, from the time of the destruction of the temple in 70 A.D. to the 4th century, they were in a total uh, flux, you might say. Uh, there was no leadership, there was no structure, and there still is very little structure in the Jewish faith. Now, please understand, I'm not talking about Jewish people in themselves. There are a lot of great Jewish people. It is the faith that they adhere to that I am talking about. Okay, That must be understood. Now, this whole idea of God's plan of salvation is continuing. First through Jesus Christ, or actually first through the Father, up to this point, then through the period of Christ, all the way over to his life, death, and resurrection. And then he gives us the Holy Spirit, who then takes us back to the Father, if we continue to adhere to the teachings of Christ. Right? That's extremely important. And that's where Paul comes in. Paul takes all of this period of time from your little diagram down here and begins to, right here, begins to establish the first written documents of our belief. To our knowledge, there was nothing written prior to Paul's letters outlining what the beliefs were of those people who followed and accepted the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And even when Paul did do that, when he did write these, we have to remember that what he speaks of as his gospel was not really his it came from the revelation that he had subsequent to his conversion uh, while he was in Arabia. And this was an infusion of God's plan as it would be applied to people from this point on. All right? And so when we read Paul, we have to remember that this information came directly from God. And the gospel that he speaks of is not the Matthew, Mark, and Luke gospel that we think of when we hear the word gospel. <clears throat> but it is the good news, meaning the idea of salvation that came forth from the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that was the kernel, but the most important element of our faith. Everything that we believe in is based on, again, the life, death, and resurrection of Christ 
its benefits, its meaning, its purpose, and uh, everything that has come forth from that. And as you know, uh, that event, the life, death, and resurrection of Christ, changed the whole world. Everything that we have, our calendar, for example, and so many other things, stems from that given point. All right? So forth, the first of the A.D. years begins from this point of the birth of Christ. Now, it's interesting to know that even though the whole world now uses that calendar, um, <clears throat> it is off by anywhere from four to seven years. Yeah, but that's not really important, um, except for a few minor things. But the fact that the whole world uses that particular calendar, which was established by uh, Pope Gregory the Thirteenth in about the 15th century, and it was based on the Julian calendar, which was established by Julius Caesar back in uh, about the year 43, somewhere in there, AD, uh, B.C. Okay, And it didn't differ much, uh, but it did start to outline. So most of our history, when we talk about things in the Old Testament, uh, the years uh, all stem from the Gregorian calendar, not the Julian calendar. Okay, The Julian calendar was only accepted uh, throughout the Roman Empire till about the 5th century. And then even that was uh, sort of disregarded, you might say, for almost another thousand years. Okay. Any questions on this subject? Does it make sense? Yes, ma'am, you had a question? Which, you mean, to, uh, of Jacob, you mean? No, there were 12. Well, there, no, the, the whole tribal system was disbanded in the, at the time of the Babylonian captivity. Uh, prior to that, genealogy was most important. The tribes were kept pretty much in a given territory within Israel, both north and south. Okay, I have maps of that. Uh, and genealogies were kept because the people wanted to adhere to the leader, uh, the, that is, the son of Jacob from whom their tribe descended. Again, the twelve. All right? And it's interesting that really uh, it isn't exactly the same twelve sons of Jacob because Joseph who was sold into slavery and became a very prominent person within the Pharaoh's household and welcomed his family when they migrated down there, married a Egyptian woman. 
And therefore, his two sons were given the priority because from the 12 tribes of Jacob, the Levites were excluded because they were the priestly class and in rather than giving them a specific uh, plot of land in Israel when they returned, they were told that they had to live among all of the other tribes as priests or representatives, you might say, of God. So that was one minus, all right? Uh, oh, what am I? I lost my trend of thought. Uh, when you get old, that's, you know. See, uh, well, this is the Levites, all right? I was I was trying trying to think of oh um, Joseph Joseph himself um, did not get a plot of land okay but his two sons did so it still comes back to twelve all right um, but you have this little mix up there it's not that important but um, when you see particularly in the northern kingdom, uh, the, the whole idea of Ephraim and Manasseh. Ephraim and Manasseh were the names of the two sons of, jo- of Joseph, all right? And they became probably the worst of the northern kingdom tribes. Uh, but Reuben, Benjamin, uh, Dan, Asher, and so forth, are all of the other tribes that were there, and they were all given plots of land. That's not so important. Okay, uh, The whole fact is that that whole system disappeared after the Babylonian captivity and was not really resurrected at all. Yeah. Well, any other questions? Does this make sense? You get the idea of the plan of salvation, which is still in operation. It is the Holy Spirit's role to take what the Father and the Son have given mankind and use that to bring mankind back to the Father. And this is where we are. And that's why this is a broken line, because it is not completed yet. It will not be completed until the end of time. Okay. So we are still on this road, you might say. Now, what does all that mean to what we are studying? As I've said, Paul was very instrumental in being the first person to write the benefits of what transpired down in this part here during the life of Christ what he taught, and the meaning of his death and resurrection. That was the gospel. That was the extent of his gospel. The word gospel, as you know, comes from the word good news. And, of course, these people here in Judaism never thought about salvation in the way we think of it, that is, returning to God. Most of them, up to a point, 
felt that life here on earth was it. Once you died, that was it. There was no more. And in many cases, their life reflected that. The Hasidic Jews, that is the ultra-Orthodox Jews, are still in that mode of belief. Once you die, that's it. If you do not make your mark on earth, then forget about it. Um, There was a very, very unfortunate incident yesterday, as you know, there was four people uh, in a Jewish synagogue in Israel uh, executed by somebody. And two of them were American rabbis. But the the sad thing about it is, as I said, Judaism sort of went off the path and is still off the path. That doesn't mean that they can't eventually, but they have to come back through this plan of salvation and through Jesus Christ. Because Christ himself has said, no one can come to the Father except through me, through Jesus, of course, all right? Which means is the possibility is open to these people, but they can't get to heaven unless they come back through Jesus Christ. Now, what did Paul teach? And I'd like to do kind of a summary here because these two letters, Galatians and Romans, cover a great deal of territory. But if you can just remember five or six of the main items, the others will eventually come back to you in time. Galatians was written for an entirely different reason than Romans, even though they cover much of the same territory. Uh, information. Galatians was written after, to the Galatia, the book of Galatians was written to the people of Galatia after Paul had established many, many, and we don't know how many, but many of these household churches throughout the territory of Galatia, which is now the country of Turkey. And over a period of time, they became very strong Christians. They were not Jews at the time, although there probably was a smattering of Jews among them. But they became strong Christians. However, other Christians who were converted from Judaism came up from Jerusalem and tried to persuade the Galatian converts into believing that they had to become strict Jews before they could become good Christians. And that included going through the Jewish rite of uh, circumcision, which was equivalent to our baptism. And they had to uh, adhere to many of the other Jewish laws. And this became confusing to these people and uh, really a hardship. 
So Paul writes this letter explaining that they did not have to adhere to the law, that the law no longer applied to Christians because Christ completed that law. And if they accepted the teachings of Christ and got on to this road of salvation here, that they would be saved and that was all that they had to do. But, of course, they, Paul had to explain in his writings what all of that meant. And that's what we, where we get the whole idea of justification. Justification is really a turning away from anything else that is in opposition to the teachings of Christ and this road to salvation. Okay. And so we would like to say that the word justification, as Paul meant it, means getting back onto the right road that leads to Christ, that leads to salvation. Justification, as we said here, is based on faith in the acceptance of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, which is the essence of Paul's gospel, and our allegiance to Christ as shown in our speech and our actions. In other words, belief is not sufficient. Belief is only the first part of what Christ is asking of us. We must express our faith through our actions, our speech and our actions. Extremely important. All right. <coughs> says, this rules out the need to adhere to the Mosaic law and its principal right, circumcision. Right. Now, that doesn't mean it rules out obeying the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments, which was the nucleus or the essence of the Jewish or the Mosaic law is still uh, part of God's law to all mankind. So the Ten Commandments are still something that we have to obey, but these are commandments put into words that are actually part of the moral law that all mankind uh, has as part of their makeup. So justification is a turning away from a sinful life or a pagan style uh, lifestyle or a misguided belief, such as the Jewish belief in the Mosaic law, which they feel by obeying all of these laws is going to get them uh, into heaven, for those who believe in heaven. But that's not true. Laws can only tell you what you've done wrong or what you should do, and if you don't, you're wrong. You know, think of that in the way of our, and I use this example all the time, of our um, driving laws or rules of the road. You're not going to get a policeman that's going to stop you and say, oh, you are good people because you've been driving so nicely. You know? No, that just doesn't work. Well, 
God's going to say the same thing by people who keep all of these laws, whether they like it or not, because just keeping laws is not going to do anything for you. It might make you a good person, and by that, if you show love and so forth, God might let you in the back door of heaven. But that is not really what God wanted. And these people never spent any time trying to understand what God wanted of them. And they still don't. You will have in the readings that I have done and the, the study and the research I've done on Judaism is beautiful in one hand, but very earthly. Or, uh, it doesn't reach into where God is. They don't open their mind and their heart to a personal relationship with God through Christ or anyone else. And that's so unfortunate. Okay. Now, the difference between <coughs> circumcision <coughs> is strictly an earthly commitment, whereas baptism is a spiritual commitment. Circumcision was a commitment to God through Moses and the observance of this law, the Jewish law, of course. Baptism is a commitment to God through Jesus Christ. And it is, yeah, we have, we have rules and regulations, but most of them are structured to help us see what God wants of us and to help us to open our mind and our heart to developing a personal relationship with God. The rules can be broken now and then and are often broken now and then because of our frail human nature. But God has given us the tools, the way of getting back on this road here and into his good graces. But Jewish people don't have that because their belief doesn't allow it or their lack of belief, whatever. Okay. So by our taking our belief system and understanding our commitment that we made or someone made for us in our baptism should help us to really understand why we do what we do. But the study of our faith should never end. It's unfortunate that I've met so many, many people, and perhaps some of you may have been one of those persons who went to Catholic schools and, you know, had a very good foundation in Catholic education, but once they left elementary or perhaps high school or maybe even college, that was it. They never opened another book to study the depth of their faith. And so many Christians, so many Catholics, still have an elementary school level understanding of their faith. And, you know, so many of the things that we were taught in elementary schools uh, were presented in a way for a child to understand, but now has to be brought up to an adult level. And 
so many people just don't bother with that. And it's so unfortunate because our faith is so beautiful and has so many benefits to offer. Um, I can't tell you how wonderful God has been to me, even though I've experienced uh, a lot of heartache over the years. <clears throat> I'm currently going through uh, a serious problem. Um, but God is there always with me. And I don't have to worry about it. And I don't worry about it because I feel that he's walking there with me. And that's what I would like to have all of you feel in the same way. It's important that we open our mind and our heart to know that God is loving each one of us as if we were the only person on earth. That's important. He will love each one of you as if you were the only person on earth. And that is a tremendous feeling. And when you're going through some difficult times, all you have to do is call on him for help. And that doesn't mean that the difficult times are going to disappear. But it means that there will be somebody walking along with you and helping you out. Once we have understood and accepted the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus as our key to salvation, and we get back on this road through baptism and our willingness to accept the teachings of Christ and his church, then we can participate in the redemption, the act of offering his body and blood for our salvation because it's something that we could not do. Christ becoming man did so for the purpose of loving us and showing us his love, but also accepting the sins of all mankind on his back, taking them to the cross. And by us understanding that, that we have a way of getting back to God eventually, even though we may have sinned. Um, excuse me, just a minute. Sorry for the intrusion. <clears throat> Once we have accepted all of this, it gives us the freedom that Paul talks about in his letters, both of them, a freedom that is not only freeing us up from observing all of these laws, but it's a freedom that goes beyond that. Uh, freedom to, first of all, use our own uh, free will. It gives us a freedom of this idea that we've got to observe things that really don't make a lot of sense or that don't really represent worshiping God, that really doesn't 
enhance our relationship with God as so many of the Jewish laws did. Remember, many of those laws were never really intended as worship, but were for hygiene and for other uh, purposes, but came or gradually worked their way into uh, religious observances over a period of time. The other thing to remember, too, is that during this whole period of time here, the laws, that is the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, the Torah, was not written until, it was not brought together and written until the 5th century B.C. So what did all of these people do before that? So, so much of what the Jewish beliefs are really kind of don't fit together. You've got all these little pieces, but they don't mesh. Whereas what we believe through here all fits together and represents heaven for us eventually. Okay. And, of course, the whole idea of Christ's death and resurrection uh, represents the expiation of all sins of all mankind. Okay. <coughs> Paul's letter to the Romans was written for an entirely different reason, as I said earlier. Paul must have been so fired up with all of this pent-up knowledge that he got from these revelations that he had to share it with others. And of course, that was his purpose and his role in God's plan of salvation. And so he writes essentially the same kind of thing that he wrote in Galatians, but to the Romans. Now, he never, contrary to uh, the whole scene in Galatia, Paul never knew the Romans. He never established any of the Roman churches. Uh, how those churches got established, we don't know. Uh, but obviously, Christianity spread perhaps by some of the other apostles. We just don't know. Right? But it was Paul intention, Paul's intention that he wanted to go and start establishing churches uh, over in Spain, as he did in Galatia. And he wanted the support of the people in Rome, that is the converts to Christianity in Rome. He wanted not only their financial support, but uh, their logistic support and so forth and so on. Unfortunately, that never happened. But by writing this letter, he's sort of introducing himself and his message, his gospel, uh, and he's going through a lot of what he learned and wrote to the Galatians. So that is why there is a lot of repetition in Romans as it was in Galatians. So we have to remember that because he's not duplicating himself and God forbid he's not tripping up or contradicting himself 
He's a little bit more detailed, you might say, in Romans. Romans is the first theological document of our belief system. And I think that it is an extremely beautiful letter um, if you sort of overlook the, the wording. But remember, the wording comes from what was commonly used in those days, 2,000 years ago. And we have a translation problem as well. So you've got to be a little more forgiving uh, as you go through some of the difficult words and Paul's way of expressing himself, where one sentence can go on for a whole page, just about. So that's why I often set aside the wording and get down to the essence of the meaning. Yes, Steve? Yes, yes. Yeah, Steve's question was, did Paul pretty much stay to one language? Uh, I would say yes, but not exclusively. It was Greek. Because that was the language of the educated people uh, and the majority of people to whom he was speaking. The Greek language was uh, the dominant language at his time uh, throughout the Roman Empire. That was something that Alexander the Great insisted on. And, of course, it created a lot of problems, uh, one of which was the the great uh, Maccabean Wars in the 2nd century uh, B.C. And that's another whole story. You can read that in the first and second book of Maccabees. But, yes, he was pretty much Greek. Uh, and don't say, well, that's all Greek to me. Okay. All right. Any other questions? Yes, Lou? Uh, it's safe to think that maybe Paul wrote a little more sophisticated to the Romans than he did the Galatians because the Romans were educated. Well, I never thought about that, but let's think. Lou's question was, is the letter to the Romans a little more sophisticated than the letter to the Galatians? And the only thing that comes to mind is probably yes, because he was very upset with the Galatians. You know, they uh, started to accept the teachings of these uh, people that came up from Jerusalem and sort of stirred them up. And he was really upset because it was like they were going against what he had taught them. And so, yes, uh, I think it, the wording uh, reflects a lot of anger. Whereas in Romans, he had no beef with the Romans, and he was trying to ingratiate himself so that they would accept him with open arms when he got there. Unfortunately, when he got to Rome, it was under entirely different conditions. Yeah. Yes, Rita? Probably in Corinth, part of Greece. Both letters were written in Corinth, as far as most people know. Yeah. 
Chat. No, that's all right. Uh, well, that you know, that is because of why he didn't get to Spain. Yeah. Chet's question is, what was the problem that was created in Rome that prevented Paul from going to Spain? After he left Corinth, he had taken up a collection. Remember, I mentioned this before. The persecution of the Christians in and around Jerusalem had begun long before this time. Many of the people who were openly Christian lost their jobs. Many of them could not buy uh, or sell in Jerusalem uh, because they were ostracized from the temple and looked upon as enemies. So the whole idea is that uh, dire poverty was setting in among the Christians in and around Jerusalem. And so Paul had collected money not only from the Galatians, but several other, uh, the Philippians and the Corinthians, etc. And he wanted also the Romans to chip in as well. Well, when he got to Rome, uh, rather, when he got to Jerusalem, eventually, they pounced, uh, the, that is the temple rulers. Remember, they didn't have any strong and authorized civil leaders. Uh, it was only the temple leaders uh, in Jerusalem at this time pounced on him uh, because of his teachings, uh, which they felt were um, against their belief system, which they were in a way, uh, and they wanted to imprison him. And he said, well, wait a minute, wait a minute, you can't, I'm the Roman citizen. So they kept him in prison. They sent him to Caesarea, where he stayed for almost two years. Uh, there was a change. Pilate left. Uh, Festus came in. Then there was another fellow after that, Felix, I believe. Uh, so there was a period of mm, maybe three or four years before he eventually got to Rome. Yeah. And he appealed to Rome through the Roman law that says the Jewish people could not put him to death uh, or try him for anything. Well, when he got to Rome, they weren't really concerned because it was a Jewish matter. But they kept him in prison for a couple of years, but allowed him to, do, to write and to have visitors and uh, to get his writings out. He wrote, you know, to Timothy and Titus and uh, Philemon from prison, house prison, you might say, in Rome. Uh, and then, of course, he was beheaded, uh, we think, under Nero uh, around the year 67 AD. Yes, Steve? You bet he was, yes. He, he makes a very bold statement in Galatians about being a Pharisee. I, it was my understanding that he was 
not certain about that, but it's interesting that in chapter 16 of Romans, Paul talks a great deal about a variety of women. Uh, in fact, there's about 20 women uh, mentioned in chapters 15 and 16 of Paul's letter to the Romans, and in a very positive way. So I have no way of knowing. We believe that Paul was never married. In fact, he makes a statement in one of his other letters about not being married. Um, it's, um, but in, in chapter 16, he makes a, a lot of very positive statements about um, greetings to various uh, women that he had apparently had some contact with. We don't know most of them. Uh, Priscilla and Aquila, husband and wife team, were mentioned in several of his letters and they became very prominent. The other thing that's interesting there is that um, there are women deaconesses mentioned. I guess women deaconesses is a sort of a wrong way of saying it, but uh, women who were deacons uh, are mentioned uh, prominently in his letter as well. So it's it's an interesting observation, I think. And there's a lot of questions, I think, that are unanswered about Paul. Um, for one thing is his uh, conversion. When he was on his way to Damascus to take prison prisoner, any Christian that he met, and he had authority to do that. But he wasn't even 30 years old at the time. And he was, you know, 30 was sort of the equivalent to our 21. He wasn't considered a mature adult yet. So how could he have done that at a younger age? That's a question that has often puzzled many people. But there's a few other things too. Um, but he's a mysterious character. And the main thing, though, that we have to remember is that God chose him as the person to expand this whole idea of God's plan of salvation outside of Judaism to the Gentiles. And he became the apostle to the Gentiles, a title that he actually uh, relished. Any other questions? Yes, ma'am. in 30 to 35 and then he went to Arabia immediately which was not on the timeline but then his first visit to Jerusalem in year 37 38 a second visit and then not until 48 or 50 that did he write Galatians how is it that we feel that what he's revealing in the Galatians came from his revelation in Arabia and not from his visit to Jerusalem. Yeah, well, good point. Uh, if you go to 
Paul's letter to the Corinthians, second letter to the Corinthians. He talks about 14 years between his letter to the Galatians um, after his conversion. So we know that there was a long period of time there. Um, and I think that will answer your question. The second, second Corinthians, yes. Yeah. The 14 years is, is that time period that you're speaking of there. Yes, ma'am. That's right. He spent very little. In fact, he makes a, a big point of that. He's almost proud of that because he and Peter, mm, you know, didn't see eye to eye. That's right. That's right. And that's so important that, you know, and I'm wondering, that's the puzzle. I have never seen the church in any writing really make a point of that. And yet, to me, that's the most important point of Paul's writings, that they came directly from God during those revelations. Yeah. And he makes a point of it, but the church doesn't, for some reason or other. I don't know why. Any other questions? No. No. Paul's teaching is extremely narrow on the meaning of the life, death, and resurrection of Christ and the meaning of love. He goes in chapter 15, he goes a great deal into the meaning of love again, which he did also in many of the other letters, primarily uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Okay, um, But everything is uh, based on following uh, the teachings of Christ and our faith expressed through love. And that's something that the Jewish people do not uh, recognize and do not profess. In fact, love to them is something that they hold very close to their, their heart and do not extend it beyond um, their own immediate family as a rule. Okay. Uh, I can't help you any more than that. Okay. Any other questions? Yes, Jose? I'm sorry, what was that again? Well, if they never heard of Christ, that can't be held against them. And the church feels, now, Jose's question really is, what about those people who have never heard about Christ or had an opportunity to understand who Christ is? And of course, in today's society, that's virtually impossible. But, you know, before all this high-tech stuff and television and radio, etc., that was a very common and, and a very plausible question. The church teaches that if a person has never heard about Christ or had an opportunity to really understand who he is, 
and lives in the spirit of true love, love of neighbor, and to some degree love of God in a primitive way, then they have an opportunity to go to heaven as well. Because, as John tells us in his first letter, chapter 4, that if God reigns in us in the form of love, then God cannot condemn himself. Okay, does that make sense? I mean, love is from God. True love is from God. And if that is something that is important and we express it through our mind and our heart, and for those people who don't know Christ but express true love of neighbor through their mind and their heart, then God reigns in them. And God's not going to condemn himself. So therefore, that person has an opportunity to get to heaven. Yeah. It's the people who have known who Christ is and do nothing about it to get onto this road to justification, to salvation. Those are the people who really have to worry. And we have to worry as well. Just because we are baptized Christians or Catholics doesn't mean that that's automatically going to get us there. We can waffle off of this path as well through sin or disobedience in some way. So obedience is extremely important. Submission to the will of God is extremely important to salvation. And that's something that most people, particularly from Western civilization, just shudder away from. They don't want to be submissive to anybody. But submissive to God is a beautiful thing. When you give yourself to God, he in turn gives you freedom to really be your full self. And that comes down to what this book is all about. Opening your mind and your heart to God. And so, with that, let us end our class, not only for today, but for this session. Yes. That's right. Yes. Right. But you you got to kind of keep this in mind. Christianity did not separate itself. Christianity remains on the road of salvation. It is the Jewish people who went off to do their own thing. All right, let us end with a prayer and then I will talk about the book in a minute. In the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit. Lord, we thank you for 
allowing us this time to really explore Paul's letter to the Galatians and the Romans. Help us now to understand as we hear that read or excerpts of it read from time to time in Mass or at other services. Help us to really put it into the proper context so that we understand the beauty of this, these letters. So give us the mind and the heart of Christ as we accept his death and resurrection as the turning point of our salvation. For this, we thank you for so many graces and blessings. We thank you and praise you in all things in Jesus. But uh, I want to give each of you a copy of this book, as I said last week, because I find that it is something that should be read over and over. Not continuously necessarily, but once you've read it, put it aside. Uh, well, better yet, give it to somebody else so that they might read it. And that's one of the requirements that I'm going to make. First of all, that you read it, and then secondly, that you pass it on. But in, in addition, I would recommend that in a year or two, you read it again to see where you have changed or what you have done to improve your relationship with Christ. Because it's only when you look back and see where you've come from to where you are now that you will really uh, understand and uh, accept and enjoy the relationship that you have with God. So it's important that you take a look at where you've been, where you are now, and where you might be in a year or two and from there on.